Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peake, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today's episode is sponsored by Set Apart Farms. They're helping veterans and their families find housing, get the therapy they need, and so much more. Today, we have special guest Grant Cameron, Mr. White House UFO. We'll be discussing how he got into the field of ufology and what he's been recently working on looking into orbs. So we have a lot to go over. And so strap on them seatbelts. We're going for a ride. Welcome to UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is episode 68 with your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today's episode is sponsored by Set Apart Farms. They're helping veterans and their families with housing, therapy, and healing, and so much more. Please go check them out at setapartfarms.org. Today we have very special guests. We have Mr. White House UFO, Grant Cameron. Grant, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jesse. I appreciate you having me on and you're having your interest in what I do. Absolutely. I've been following you since I got into the field. Um, I, you're, you're definitely talked about a lot and your research um, yeah. and what you've done in, at, you know, at Congress and all that, um, just being there. Um, and I appreciate you coming on today and sharing your knowledge with us. Sure. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people ask you questions before, but I have never heard how you got involved into the field of ufology. Uh, pretty simple. I had no interest in the field. Uh, 1975, I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, which is just north of North Dakota, maybe 60 miles from the border. Uh, there was a, a flop of sightings at a town called Carmen, which is about 25 miles north of the border. And um, we used to drive around the city and uh, there was reports of this thing being seen there. It was called Charlie Red Star. And we were sort of watching, it was in the paper, and I said to my friend, instead of driving around the city, why don't we drive out to Carmen and see what they're, what everybody's looking at? And he said, yeah, we'll go. And, and this is February of 1975, and we never did go. And it was May of 1975, the local TV station caught this thing jumping off the ground. And I believe that video can be seen in a documentary called um, uh, UFO Cover-Up Live 1988. And uh, so when that thing was caught by this TV station jumping off the ground, they did a sort of an eight minute special and they went frame by frame and showed how this thing was moving and all this kind of stuff. It's just bizarre with this flash frame in it. And, and then I said to my friend, come on, let, let's go see what they're looking at. And so we drove out there and I always describe it as you buy the lottery ticket. You know, there's a chance you're going to win, but you're not going to win nothing. So we go out there and sure enough, nothing happened. We were driving around for an hour and we're looking at what is everybody looking at? And we're looking at stars and planets and so whatever they're looking at isn't too spectacular. So my friend said, OK, we'll drive back into Carmen one more time. If we don't see anything, let's go home. And I said, fantastic. It's been a total waste of time. He turned the car around to go back into the town for the last time. And this thing appeared from the left to the right down low. Right in front of the car, it would look like it was alive. It was like a plasma, red plasma. And it was um, uh, moving very, very slow, maybe 30 or 40 miles an hour. Uh, it was moving, sort of bobbing up and down. It was pulsing like it was alive. And I just went, wow. Everybody in the car just went, there it is. Everybody, nobody asked, was that what they're looking at? Everybody just went, there it is. You instantly knew this is what everybody was talking about. Went out two nights later, the thing flew right at me, and then it made this sort of turn and went off in a different direction. 
and I was hooked. I, I just uh, couldn't believe that this was going on and nobody was documenting this, this case. So I, I basically spent about a year and a half in the town because this thing was still flying around. And then there was these, uh, what we now call orbs, but ground lights that we were, uh, we were tracking, put it all in the manuscript, went to all the publishers in Toronto, Canada, where the big publishers are. And nobody was really interested. One read the manuscript, but they really were interested. The local publisher who should have been interested because it was a big story here in Manitoba. I remember the rejection letter. It said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And I was absolutely <laughs> horrified that I spent a, a year and a half tracking hundreds of witnesses and what they had seen and putting it all in this manuscript and nobody really cared. So after that, I never did do sightings. I always said, sightings are things you can tell your kids when they go old and gray. All I was interested in was the second night when this thing was flying away, I wondered, what's it doing? What's it doing in Carmen? There's nothing here. And I was just like, what is going on? What is this thing? And I thought, well, it may be extraterrestrial. Well, still, what, what the heck is it doing here? And I knew that I wouldn't know the answer, but I said, somebody's got to know the answer. And that's why I went on this trek where I chased uh, the highest level of the Canadian government, the president of the United States, the highest intelligence officials in the CIA, and high-level scientists who I believe knew what was going on. And I listened very carefully to what they were saying. And I figured one of these people has got to know what's going on. Right. And that was my pursuit for the rest of my life is to try to figure out what this thing was that I saw in 1975. And did you ever find out what it was doing there? What, what might have been, what it might have been possibly doing at all? Well, the only answer I got was when I made the shift from presidents to the idea of consciousness. I was watching Colin Andrews give a lecture in 1970, no, in about maybe 15 years ago now. And it was in Laughlin, Nevada, and it was these, these, it's the World Converse. So you go there to, you know, some lectures you go to, some you don't, because it goes from eight o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And I wasn't really going to go. I wasn't interested in crop circles, but I thought, well, Colin Andrews is a pretty prominent guy. I've never seen him lecture. And there was a big controversy at that point because he said 80% of all crop circles were, were hoaxed and everybody's ready to throw them out of the UFO community. So I said, well, I should go see what's going on here. And so I went in there. And I really wasn't interested, so I sort of zoned out. Um, and I call it a contact modality, where you can sort of get in the field, where there's meditation or hypnosis. And right. mine is, is is daydreaming. So I wasn't really interested in the lecture. I'm just sort of sitting there. And he was talking about consciousness and crop circles, how um, they were not only uh, creating the crop circles, but they were um, the, the intelligence was also directing the people who were hoaxing the crop circles, what to put down. And, and then suddenly it came into my head. It was three pieces of a puzzle that I had uh, I had known the pieces of the puzzle. It just put them all together instantaneously. And if you've ever heard, like, for example, Gary Nolan uses this sort of a download inspirational thing. And he talks about this. He said, I don't know how it works, but I know how to make it work. And he talks about how you think the whole problem through. And then you put the question beside you on the bed. And he said, uh, you know, next morning he'll wake up or a couple of days later and the idea will be in his head and he knows that it's accurate. It's right. And this is the thing. It was like it was a knowing. It was like, oh, that's how it works. It was like absolute certainty that this was real. And he just put three pieces of a puzzle together in my head. One was the 1950 Canadian government top secret document where the Canadians go to the Americans and the Americans say five things. And the fifth thing that they say was, we were also told by American officials, not people in the street, American officials, that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. 
The Americans aren't doing very well because they said if we're working on the problem, they're willing to exchange credentials and talk to us. That was the first piece of the puzzle, mental phenomena. The Americans knew in 1950, November 1950, that mental phenomena was involved. We chased around a guy uh, from, the, from Penn State University. He was uh, president of Penn State University for 15 years. He was the chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis at the same time that the Institute uh, created DARPA and the Jasons. And uh, this guy knew exactly what was going on. He was the co-developer of the homing torpedo. He was on the Defense Science Board, uh, you know, 1,400 doctorate degrees. It was just unbelievable credentials. And uh, we were bugging him. He knew what was going on. And he, at one point, he stopped and he said, look, let me ask you a question. We know about ESP. And the guy who was interviewing him from Great Britain said, well, I don't know. And he said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in by the control group. Very few, very few people understand how it works. And the third piece of the puzzle that was put in my head at the same time, all instantaneously, was Ben Rich. At, uh, when uh, Jan Harrison goes there in 1993, I believe it was, Ben, ben Rich is giving a lecture. He said, we now have the technology to take ET home. It's not yes. going to take a lifetime to do. And he's, and then so Jan follows him out of the building as he's, as he's leaving. He realizes this is his only chance to ask him a question. He said, Ben, how did they get here? How does this propulsion system work? And Ben turns around just 1993, two years after Walker told us, said exactly what Walker said. He said, let me ask you a question. Well, you know about ESP. And Jan Hartson said, uh, it means everything in time and space is connected. That's how it works. And gets in his car and drives away. <laughs> and, and so that was the whole thing. It was this consciousness thing. It was like, oh, that's what this is all about. And it was absolute certainty. This is, it's got to do with consciousness. And I really didn't know what consciousness was at the time. And, and then I learned later it was non-local consciousness, that this may not be as physical as people think it is. It may be more spiritual. People think it is. It may be like a thousand times more complex than people think it is. That's where I've sort of headed. And, and so most of my time is now directed at trying to figure out what is reality? How does reality actually work? I mean, is consciousness primary? Because I had another download in 2017 where it basically was saying to me, okay, well, is it this or is it that? What, what you believe is not only wrong, it's exactly the opposite of what you think it is. Is the world made out of little nuts and bolts? If it is, that's one world and that has certain rules and regulations. But it's made out of consciousness. That's a completely different world. And, that, and, and the rules and regulations are going to change. And if you look at Max Planck, who developed uh, quantum physics, and a lot of the quant early quantum physics guys, he said, nothing gets behind consciousness. They all believed at that point consciousness was primary. The consciousness, when there's an observer, the quantum wave potential breaks down and matter appears, but not until there's an observer. So consciousness is primary. And that's where I've sort of gone with my research, is to look at what's really going on here and that's where I've got in the latest book I did, which is called UFO Sky Pilots, where I actually think it's there's no no doubt that if you believe these 36 people I've got in the book, consciousness is primary. It's critically important to how they fly the, the craft, uh, to uh, how the craft is built, to AI, to all this kind of stuff. It's it, Consciousness is a key component to this thing. And unless people uh, think about consciousness, they, they are never going to get anywhere because that's if you hear the stories that they, um, uh, Eric David said in 1989, they put on the shelf because they couldn't figure it out. Uh, there was the, what was right. called the core story that they they had they had hardware, but they couldn't figure it out. Or if you look at this Wilson leak document that leaked at the very end of the document, it sort of says it says we have a craft and we think it'll fly, which means they have a craft and they can't fly it. And the reason they can't fly it is because you need a consciousness interface and they don't have that. Right. So they've got an intact craft, but they can they can't turn it on and, and fly it.
And that's why they didn't have no controls inside the craft, correct? And they were confused by that, right? Yeah, and they, they would just have these panels. And so the, the, when I had these people, the first one came to me in 2013. I had that experience with Colin Anders in February 26, 2012. So in, in, in 2013, that's when this new field started where uh, the head of MUFON in Phoenix is a big group. Uh, Stacy Wright said to me, are you still going to meet with Pam Dupuis? And I said, yeah, I guess so. I want to, I must have agreed to meet, meet with this woman, whoever she is. And so I didn't know what it was about. And she said, well, it's good. She's coming to my house on Monday. You can talk to her. So <laughs> Pam Dupuis was in her 70s and she came with her partner and she said, what did Stacy tell you about me? And I said, I don't know. She just said, I'm supposed to talk to you. So that's good. She comes walking in and she starts talking about she remote views for the government and she's psychic and this. And you hear all this sort of stuff. And she was abducted as a kid and all sort of stuff. And you've heard all this stuff before. Yeah. So I'm sitting there listening to her. And then all of a sudden she says, oh, and last night I was flying the craft. And I went, you were flying the craft? And I, I was like, I was ready to throw her the house. I, just, right. I never, <laughs> I mean, I've been done doing this for 50 years. I could never, anything like it. I couldn't believe her. She was saying this. I said, you're flying the craft? And all I could think in my head was, was Saudi Arabian women at that point. We're not allowed to fly, uh, drive a car unless there's a man in the car. And I'm thinking, I mean, they let you fly the right. craft? Yeah. And she said, oh yeah, I've flown three different models. And I said, really? I said, why do you fly a craft? And she said, or you do it with your mind. And as soon as she said that, I realized why they'd set me up because I was on this consciousness thing and they uh, wanted her to tell me that this is a key part. And then these people started coming to me. It was like synchronistically, these aren't on the internet, these people. They all started coming to me and, and I would hear these stories and and uh, they were all saying the same thing, which is basically um, they, they would find themselves in the craft. Only The only person that actually remembers going in the craft was Chris Bledsoe, if you know right. the experience yes, of the yep. And um, they would all describe this thing where like Chris Bledsoe, where he, he went in the craft and it was huge on the inside. And he looked outside, and it was only like a little craft and he looked inside and it was huge. And people would describe this, that you could, you know, you could take a football and throw it as hard as you could in any direction and not hit a wall. Or people were described that looking directions, they could not see the end of, end of the craft inside. It was huge inside the craft. And they were told that they, they, could, they could make the craft as big as they wanted. They could change things and whatever. And um, they would they would be standing inside the craft. Most of them would just suddenly appear inside the craft. And there would be somebody behind them. Now, I've just heard an interview by Jim Semivan, who was the high-level CIA, talk about this. And he called it a guardian, a guardian type of thing going on behind me. And this is this whole idea about guardian. If you talk about people, uh, life between life, you know, um, afterlife, the the, the uh, sort of the um, life review that takes place. The the spirit guide stands behind the person on the left side. Right. And, right. and so when Jim Semivan said that, I said that's what the people in the craft were saying. They were saying there was somebody behind. There was somebody behind them, but they didn't know if it was a human or an alien or what it was. They didn't look, and they would say that they'd be standing in the craft, and then this voice behind them would say. Go ahead and do it. And then the guy, I had the one guy from Los Angeles who was um, was a U.S. Air Force retired colonel. Like my, my son's a pilot, my father's a pilot. I, and he hadn't come to the lecture when I lectured at Orange County. But they, they said, David, David, tell Grant your story. Tell your story. And he said, oh, I think it was a dream. It seemed like a dream. I said, well, everybody thinks it's a dream. I said, did, did you, fly, did you think you flew the craft? He said, yeah, but I still think it was a dream. And then he told me he flew F-16s. And I went, holy cow, sit down and tell me your dream. And, and it was the same thing. He said, standing in the craft, and he's standing there, and the voice is behind me says, go ahead and do it. And he said, I don't know what to do. And then he said, you know what to do, just do it. And there was this panel along the wall. So people will describe a panel. They put their hand on a panel. 
or they put their hand on a ball. A lot of women would describe it, describe putting their hand on a ball or you're sitting in a chair that's almost built for you and you have these two holes on the end of the, the armrest and you put your fingers in these armrests or you put your hand on a panel on the wall. One guy from Liverpool told me that story. And then suddenly you're able to see in 360 degree vision, you suddenly link up with the craft, that the craft is alive, which is extremely important. Because if these experiential accounts on board the ship are true, what they are describing is artificial intelligence like a thousand or five thousand years from now. The craft is alive. It's a biological craft. And, and they're told that the crafts are grown, that that's why there's no uh, joints or rivets in, in, the, in the craft. That's why everything is molded on the inside. People describe this thing as being molded like it was taken out of a mold. And the, the craft is alive. So we have this thing about artificial intelligence that you're going to take consciousness and you're going to stick it inside a, a computer or a machine. Well, they've got it backwards. Consciousness is primer. It makes the machine. And, and nothing appears until there's an observer and the quantum wave breaks down and the matter comes into, into physical reality. And it's that sort of thing. So the idea is that you're not going to have artificial intelligence until you have biological circuit boards, until you actually, and this has actually been done with rat brains. They've actually, in the University of Southern Florida, 2004, they actually had uh, put rat 20,000 20, neurons of a rat brain into a Petri dish, wired it to an F-22 simulator, and this thing flew, the F-22 simulator, wow. 20,000 neurons of a rat brain. So this is what, where it is. This is where artificial intelligence is. And so the people say, the, the thing is alive. Some people actually gave the name a name to the craft. And uh, Kathy Martin's assistant, I was actually talking to sort of the power plant, uh, and the, and she, she felt sorry for it. And he said, don't, don't feel sorry for me. This is what I've chosen to do. And this thing was in touch with all the other crafts in the, in the universe and stuff like that. And the other key thing is they say they become one with the craft. So they become the craft, the craft becomes them. They, whatever there's, is in their mind is what the craft, what the craft will do. And then the people will actually say, um, the beings that they're dealing with will say, okay, it's within you. Where do you want to go? And the one guy whose name is Ron Johnson, I'll give you his example. He said, well, I'd like to see the Milky Way from a distance, which would be over 50 to 70,000 light years. They said, this will take about one second. It's going to be very intense G-force. He said it was like them going through the pages of a book as they went through. And it was, he, he thought it was like dimensions. They were going through these dimensions. And he said in one second, he looked out the window and there was the Milky Way off in the distance, which would indicate that if that's true, where he went 50 to 1,000 light years in one second, there's something wrong with our idea of time and space. We're, we're making these mistakes. As they told me, not only is what you've got wrong, it's exactly the opposite. You have no clue. You think you know what's going on. You're just arrogant, egotistical. You haven't got a clue what's going on. And then that's what I sort of found with this thing. And all 36 people said the same thing. This oneness uh, with the craft. The craft is alive. Uh, the, it's within them. They just think about where they want to go and they can instantly go there. Even John Ramirez, the, the, this, the high-level CIA guy, talks about this. With him, him, And he doesn't even have a craft. He describes right. how he goes to where he's going. And you start listening to these people and you realize this is probably going to be true. Like John, uh, or say, uh, Gary Nolan said, one case is anecdotal, two cases is evidence. I say three dozen cases we better start investigating this. And I actually went to the free, if you remember the, the free foundation, actually uh, Edgar Mitchell did a survey of 3000 experiencers and 14% of the people said they'd flown the craft. So by that time I had a couple of cases and I went to for the free foundation. I said, hey, can we send a, a, you know, a second secondary study to these 14 
percent of people have flown the craft to see what they're saying. And they said, well, people see a lot of things on the craft to report. I said, yeah, they may see a lot of stuff on the craft, but they start flying the craft. I think we should talk to them. Yeah, that's what everybody's about. Is, and everybody said the same thing. There was really nobody that said there was a steering wheel. The only one was Kath, was um, Susie Hansen from New Zealand. She said she she was had a they had a little joystick that they had, but they also allowed her to use her mind. She could use either one, and she said using her mind was which much easier. And they took her through. It actually took her right through the earth. She tells she does a whole chapter in in her most recent book on flying the craft. So there's a lot of people that have done it, and um, they just sort of came to me, and I recorded their stories and put them together. And that's uh, that's this whole idea that consciousness may be a lot more important than people think it is. So then what are your thoughts on the CE5? Is this what's happening when people are sitting there doing the CE5 protocols? They're actually creating a craft and bringing that craft and flying it to to themselves? Or yeah, well, the, the other group that, that does this kind of thing is, is I know more, I know better, is the Mission Rama group that started in 1973, no, 1974 out of Peru, where they do this meditation thing. And their description of the thing is that what you're doing is you're raising vibration. The same sort of thing happens in, um, I wrote a book called Contact Modalities, yes. where I talk about all different modalities, all the same thing. So you'll see this in seances, that people, they actually created a ghost, for example, in Toronto, Canada. They were trying to use meditation and they couldn't get this. They had created this ghost with a name and all this sort of stuff, and they couldn't get it to go. And then they were told to treat it like a real seance. It's, it's, Put your hands there and start singing, you know, 99 beer bottles of beer on the wall and, and get the momentum, get get the 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 motion going and stuff like that. And and then this ghost appeared, this that they had created this ghost and they started to talk to it. And it had, you know, it was it was very, very weird where um you see this in seances where you try to raise the vibration. And that's the way the Mission Rama people describe it is they raise their vibration by doing oming and meditation. And uh, unfortunately, they don't restrict. There's people with lasers who aren't paying attention. They're shooting lasers up in the sky. But if you get that and they say that the beings can can lower their vibration, we raise ours and they meet us halfway. And and the Mission Rama people have actually been able to open these portals which I think is is a critical thing to look at. It's the same thing. It's in your mind. Is that every time I've looked at high level people talking in terms of anti gravity, they say there's no such thing. But when they start talking about portals and stuff like that, it always seems to be that they may have they may have this this thing figured out. For example, I I talked to the famous uh, Tyler D from uh, American Cosmic. Uh, his name's Tim Taylor. He didn't. I'll use his name because when I met him, there was no secrecy about his name and stuff. And he basically showed me these photographs and, and of these these paintings. And one was these two guys flying through space that looked like they were in pajamas. And he said, what do you think of these paintings? And I went, I don't know, Tim. I don't know. I have no idea. He's showing me these on his cell phone. We were in a cabin in, in, in Pennsylvania. And then uh, he said uh, to me, he says, you know where that is? And I said, no, I don't know where it is. He said, that's a huge aircraft building. And I said, I still don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, that's what the jump room was. And, and I went, right, really? Then it's like, let's show me those photographs again. And he showed me these photographs. And he said there was a car on top of the park gate where there's a, a postcard in the back seat. And it was some guy writing to his girlfriend and said, I wish I could travel through time and space to be with you or something like that. And I said, really? That's what the postcard said? Wow. And, and then I was really excited. So I went to LAX. I immediately went to 999 Sepulveda Avenue, where the Hughes Aircraft Building is now a, 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 um, an office building. And I went and photographed these things. And then I saw, thought to myself, a couple of years later, I'm thinking, 
why did he show me those photographs? Like, why he, he was there? Right. Why, why was he there? He must have he must have known something was going on. Otherwise, why would he? Because he lives in Florida. Why would he? Or he lives in Houston, uh, in Alabama. Why would he go all the way to LAX to look at this thing unless he figured there was something to it? Because he, he's on the inside. And so that was the kind of thing. It was again. It was this this thing about consciousness. Where I've chased Ron Pendolfi around, and the, his wife. They still have to maintain this story that his wife had. They have this portal thing, and his wife's been through it. And the kid told a friend of mine that she had been through it, and she was six years, seven years old when she told him this. And so you start looking at the portal thing, and you start realizing, like Mission Rama, they they're able to. They call them Zendras. And they, I, I had the one where I interviewed nine people, one after another, and they all told me, "Oh yeah, I was in this in this thing. There were seven of us in there." And and uh, the, you, you saw the being? Oh, yeah, I'm standing right there. How far away? Oh, it's about 15 meters. Uh, and each person had a different experience in the Zendra. Like each person was hearing something different from the being. And so when I, you hear this, and you actually interview the people that were inside the Zendra, and uh, then you start going like, "Wow, this this actually may be true. This is how it's happening. It's it's not a thing where you get a big engine, you go past." Speed right. of light. it's more this thing you understand all everything in time and space is connected it's all one thing because if ron johnson's story is true there may be not be time and space because you can't go that far in one second so it may be that everything is here and now and you'll hear this in mystical literature it's like a deck of cards all your lives are together everything's here there's no time right. there's no space it's only here and now and all, you hear all this sort of stuff and that may be true that that it's all they're they're here or you'll hear the beings lots of times they'll say We've always been here. One one set of beings wanted to wanted me to interview them, and that's what they said to me. I asked, "Are you extraterrestrial?" And they said, "Do you want us to be extraterrestrial? We can be extraterrestrial if you want. We can take <laughs> you to our planet if you want." But no, no, no. We've always, always been, been here. here. Yep. You're the visitor. That's what they said to me. And you'll hear this all the time. Beings will say, "We've always been here." So people think, "Oh, they're hiding under the ocean or whatever." But it may be something different. It may be they're actually here. They're right or right sitting, standing right in front of you. They're just on a different vibration. You can't pick them up. Right. Right. Wow. What a way to kick off this first half. Because I know there's plenty of experiencers that that need to hear this right now. And I'm very happy we had this conversation. Um, I want to go ahead and take our break real quick. And when we come back, we can get into that alien music connection that I. I seen you were working with that was pretty interesting as well um, yeah. so we'll go ahead and take our break and we'll be right back after these commercial messages i'm absolutely honored to announce our new sponsor set apart farms Set Apart Farms is helping veterans and their families find housing, get the therapy they need once they come back to civilian life, and help with their family healing. They also do so much more on the farms, helping them learn how to work with animals and helping with PTSD. If you'd like to go and see what they're about and give a donation, go to setapartfarms.org. They're the official sponsor of our show. UFO Encounters Worldwide has an official website for the podcast. You can go to ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com to go check out our website. There's articles on the UFO phenomenon. You can follow my travels, see where I've been, and what conferences are coming up. That's again, ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. UFO Encounters Worldwide wants to hear from you. 
have an experience or a sighting you want to share, contact your host, Jesse Peak, at ufoencountersworldwide at gmail.com today. This May is the MUFON PA Conference. I'll be speaking there with plenty of big-name UFO investigators and researchers. Get your tickets early for a special and even stay at the motel. There will be a free planetarium, free field investigator training, plus book signings, pictures, and more. I'll be there speaking and I hope to see you there. Remember, that's May for the Philadelphia MUFON Conference. Looking for some new swag? UFO Encounters Worldwide now has an official swag store. You can go to storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. It'll take you directly to our new swag store where you can get hoodies, sweatpants, t-shirts, and more. Also, we also sell brand new stickers and pins. Just DM me anytime and we'll get you all set up. Again, for the official swag store, that's storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. All right, welcome back to the second half of episode 68 with our guest, Grant Cameron. Uh, this first half, we were talking a lot about consciousness and how this how this all plays into the UFO phenomenon and really should be the main focus of what we're looking at and researching. Um, now, Grant, I seen there was something called Alley, the Alley Music Connection. Um, what, what exactly is that? Can you tell us about it? Well, I'm not really sure what that's referring to. I did do a book on music called Tuned in the Paranormal World of, of uh, Music. Okay. And and what I looked at there, I looked at first of all, I looked at the download because I had this experience with Colin Anders in 2012. So I started going on the internet. I'm looking at you know downloads. I mean, because I'm somebody else was had this weird experience because I walked around for two days. I was just like floored by what what had happened. I, I knew this was real, and it was just my head was spinning. And then I the first thing I found was was Paul McCartney with the song yesterday where he got it in the middle of the night and he got up and there's a piano and he quickly recorded this yes. thing. And then yes. he went around to people for a whole month and he said, have you ever heard this song before? Cause he figured someone had written it and they go, no, I heard that before. And, and then he, uh, he recorded it. It was the biggest producing song of all times. And then I realized, you know, the song like, uh, let it be, let it be was, was, uh, Paul McCartney again, where, uh, his mother died at 14 from cancer and he was like 18 years old and he was you know, doing drugs and just got divorced and the Beatles were falling apart and Harrison had left the, the, the band and whatever. And he goes to sleep and his mother comes to him in a dream and she says, it'll be okay. Let it be. And so that's where the words come in the song. When in times of trouble, mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be. And, and I started to realize that all these musicians are getting all these downloads. Yeah. And then I started to realize that all these musicians are also experiencers, like piles of them were, were experiencers. In fact, today, is actually the 42nd anniversary of the shooting of John Lennon. I'm doing a, an article that I'm going to put on my White House UFO blog site uh, on John Lennon. John Lennon had the sighting in 1974 and uh, told some people that he had he believed he had been abducted and uh, that um, that this was uh, this was real and um, he wrote about it in a song. And actually, according to Yuri Geller, gave Yuri Geller, I, I don't know if you heard this story, gave him an aid 
which is in the Yuri Geller Museum in, in uh, Tel Aviv. And, and this was, he, he claimed that he had woken up one night and, and in a classic sort of abduction scenario where uh, he's with Yoko Ono and he tries to wake her up and he can't wake her up and there's light coming from under the door and he thinks there might be a, uh, a fire in the, in the hallway of the, uh, the condo building, the Dakota where he lived. And so he went to the door and he opened up the door and he said, these effing beings were standing there staring at me, bug-eyed beings standing at, staring at me. And he, he said, that's the last thing he remembered. He was, he was going to go after me, the last thing he remembered. And then he said he woke up in, in, the, in the bed the next morning and Yoko was awake and he had this ache. And it was like a bronze type egg. And he said, I never had it analyzed. I asked Yuri Geller about the analysis. He's, he's told everybody the same story. He said, I never had it analyzed because I was always afraid it was made in Taiwan. And what happened <laughs> is, is John Lennon had this egg and used to meet with Yuri Geller for coffee in a coffee shop across the street in the back of this coffee shop. And he, he gave it to him and he said, this may be my ticket to another planet, but I don't want it. You can have it. And Yuri Geller said it has never been off his person. Now it's in the museum. But he said he used to keep it in his pocket all the time to protect it and stuff like that. And you hear these stories, and it's very bizarre. I was interviewed by um, uh, Joe Wood, who was uh, her husband was the Joe Wood from the from the Rolling Stones. And okay. She tells a story about her and her husband having this sighting. Uh, off the coast of Brazil and this is a classic story where the husband has to go back and get his glasses and then this thing starts to, all this performance for her and she tells this story and uh, she tells about the interest of the Rolling Stones and that she's in the Rolling Stones plane with her son and her son ends up becoming this big ecologist he's he runs a, pla a company that gets plastic out of the ocean that tries to recover plastic out of the ocean and they're in a in the Rolling Stones plane and everybody else is sort of just watching forward and this this orb comes along the side of the plane and then goes along the side of the plane and her her, her 15 year old kid or 16 year old kid is looking out the window and then it goes by the window and then it goes back down the, the plane and she and she, he says mom what is that she's i have no idea they're both looking at this orb flying along the edge of the plane and you you get it over and over again where you get piles piles of experiences that the head of kiss would just describes being halfway in the door and halfway out and the and they circle in his backyard and the fact that he 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 you know he's he's i've been in many places but this was the weirdest of them all and he basically said yes he was abducted and you get you just you realize that at one point i thought they actually had every major musician in the world i, I figured they had abducted them all and they were putting this these these they were putting the message in the music and that was what i was told by chris bledsoe he phoned me up in 2014 and it's one of four messages that I've got from from aliens through experiencers. And he said the 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 beings or you no know, he the guardians he calls them the guardians. He said the guardians have got a message for you. And I said, oh, you got a message for me? And he said, yeah, they got a message for you. He said they want you to know the message is in the music. And I said, oh, well, Chris, you could be talking to you could be talking to the wrong guy here because Chris, I don't listen to music. I have no no interest in music. My whole family's musical. My mother's a church organist for 30 years. My sisters played in a group. My father built theater organs, but I'm not interested in music, Chris. And he just kept talking. So we should listen to Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. That's one of the songs you should listen to. And then he said, Oh, and the other one you should listen to is After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. And I went, Neil Young? Are you kidding me? Neil Young's involved in this thing? And he said, Yeah, Neil Young's involved in this thing. And I'm going, 
he, he grew up in Winnipeg. <laughs> so here's a, <laughs> it's like they're dragging me down the rabbit hole. It's like, I'm no interest in this. And I, Neil Young is involved. He's, yeah. And I'm going, holy cow. And so then and it was called after the gold rush. And if you listen to the song, it's basically the, the ecology message of the experiencers that, that, that the, the world is going to be the world that we're treating the world like a gold mine. And when the gold is gone, it's become a ghost town and the silver seeds, the flying saucers are going to come down and take the chosen ones, which is what Yvonne Smith calls the experiencers, take the chosen ones to another planet. And so when I saw that, then I suddenly realized all these other experiencers had, had, had sang the same song. And I'm going, what's the chances that they all sang this song? And they probably didn't even know, like Patti Smith, Patti Smith, is an outright experiencer from the 1970s, the first woman to sing on Saturday Night Live. And she sang the song and there was all these other experiences. And I'm going, this is just weird. So I did this whole, this whole book on downloaded songs, how many, how many songs people got uh, in dreams, how many people got songs under in under 10 minutes. Like the biggest song in Canada ever was, was, was uh, um, American Woman. Okay. Unbelievable story. American Woman by the Guess Who. And the Guess Who are also from Winnipeg. And there, I, I wanted to look up their, their, the head guy who was Burton Cummings. And I said, I wonder if they got Burton Cummings. I wonder if they abducted him. And I, I went on, I got his Facebook page. He said, I'm 64 years old. He's in caps. He, he's swearing or he's yelling. He said, I, I'm 64 years old. I'll say what I want. They're mistreating Whitley Strieber. I know how he feels. I'm going, oh, it does. Oh, wow. And, and then they tells tells the story about uh, American woman. They're playing in Mississauga, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto. And he said there, this is 1968 or something. And he said they're they're playing, and uh, they they Bachman breaks a string on his guitar, and so Burton Cummings goes behind stage to buy some records off some guy, and he's buying these records. And all of a sudden, he hears Bachman's pl playing again. He's like, I gotta go. Second set, I gotta go. I'll buy those records later. And he goes running up on stage and. And he's playing the riff for American Woman. And he says to, to Burton Cummings, sing something. And he goes, American Woman, stay away from me. And he sings this song. And they, they look and there's a kid in the front of row of this of this uh, auditorium. And he's got a handheld tape recorder. And this is when they first came out. He's holding this tape recorder out. So they motion to the manager to, that this kid's got this tape recorder. He's going to bootleg the show. So the manager goes and grabs this kid's tape. Off, and at the end of the, the presentation, they they are at the after they're sitting there and they're playing this tape back and it comes to the beginning of the second set and it goes you know they play the whole American woman thing and they're all looking at each other and go where'd that come from they they, they had no idea that nobody had written it no they didn't remember wow. singing it and they said if it hadn't been for the kid with the handheld tape recorder the song would never have existed because none of them wrote it or 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 remembered playing it so you get these bizarre stories with music and and it's almost like musicians are. The way I say it is they're very right brain. Like if you took a look at the people who were abducted uh, it, I, with, um, um, I forget his name now, uh, the, um, did the 17 um, um, implants. Uh, uh, Dr. Roger Lear? Roger Lear. So they asked Roger Lear, what's common between all experiencers? So the people that you took the implants out, he said, they're all right brain creative people and there's tons of them in Hollywood. Well, musicians are very right brain. For example, the vast majority of musicians, most people don't realize, vast majority of musicians can't read and write music. All the jazz guys, all the blues guys, uh, the Stones, the you know, uh, the Beatles, uh, Barbara Streisand, you can go through the list. Uh, Jackie Gleason had an orchestra where he put, put out 20, 20 albums. He couldn't read or write music. They're all right brain. So they're sitting there. They shut down the left brain, which is the rational analytical brain that causes all the trouble. And they're able to tap in. So the right brain can tap in. And that's what musicians are. They're able to uh, tap into the field. 
because you ask a musician, where'd that song come from? And they asked, uh, for example, Blowing in the Wind by uh, Dylan. They asked, where'd that song come from, Bob Dylan? He goes, yeah, I don't know. From that wellspring of creativity, I guess. And he said, is it true you wrote it in under 10 minutes? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and you hear these stories about five minutes, two minutes. Uh, the guy from, uh, uh, I'm a, I, I, I forget all these musicians because I, I had to learn all these musicians. But uh, one of the biggest songwriters of all times right now actually has a song uh, that he that he actually shows how he how he got the song. He couldn't write really write music either, and he would have these songs. One was called Yellow. I'm keep, the band is, is skipping me, but it was called Yellow. And he said he was on the they're they're from uh, Great Britain, and he said that he was on the, all the other guys are watching a football game, soccer, and he says he the song comes into his head, and he goes to the one guy and he goes he says listen to this, and the guy goes yeah, that's pretty cool, yeah yeah do it. And then he says to go back to watch his playing soccer. And this thing had like 600 million hits or 600, you know, 600 million hits on YouTube. It was like unbelievable. You see the greatest songs of all times. If you actually look at them, a lot of them are these songs that came in a couple of minutes or uh, they're, they're never the B-side songs, just these wild stories. So I put this whole book together, even though I'm, and I said my father would roll over in his grave if he knew his kid had written a book on music because I had no interest in music. I was just interested in these weird stories about, about where the songs come from. And I did another book on inspirations where I look at all the weird things like where inspiration comes from, where, where like songs come from, where art comes from. Most of the art people will say it came from someplace else uh even michael jackson says i was so i didn't even want to put my name on the songs i was embarrassed because i i didn't i didn't create those things they just popped into my head and i did uh 13 nobel prizes i did inventions i did all that kind of stuff and it's the same thing einstein's theory of relativity came in a dream when he had the toboggan he's going down the hill with the toboggan it was going the speed of light and he said i knew i had to understand that dream it's this knowing thing that i had i knew i had to understand that dream in fact you could say and i would say that my entire career was based upon a meditation on a dream so the whole thing came in a dream and and bore the the theory of an atom came in a dream and and the the, the idea for the laser the idea for the hologram came while these guys were sitting on a park bench it was like Gary Nolan you work through the problem and you can't figure it out you can't figure it out and then you quiet the left brain so they were sitting on a they were sitting on a park bench one guy was waiting for a restaurant to open the other guy was watching a, a, a tennis game and they're just sitting in there and they quieted the mind the, the left brain and all of a sudden boop, the answer comes in their head and they get up and go running back to the lab and quickly <laughs> write it down and same as me because I knew I had to you knew I had to write it down it was like holy cow it's almost like a dream. If you don't write it down, it sort of fades away. And it's the ideas, even the experiencers, like 40% of all experiencers, according to this free survey, said at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And if you look at near-death experience people, the survey they did, 31% of the people that had the near-death experience said they knew the answer to everything at the universe at one point during their experience. And as they come back, it all fades away, which would indicate that the aliens who are giving us access to this everything in the universe have access to everything in the universe. Therefore, they're not here to study us and study plants and stuff. They have the answer to everything. They, they have that and they've given it to us. And uh, so the idea is that everything is in the field, this idea that it may all be one thing. It's all here, it's all now. All the answers are in the field. And you, you, if you know how to get into the field, you know how to shut the left brain down, get into the field, you're able to pull music, you're able to pull art, you're able to pull out stuff. Everything is there. It's all been invented, ready. There's no past, there's no future, there's nothing. It's all here and now. And, and that's the exciting part where it's like 
the reality that we may be totally far away from how reality works. We have, as they told me, and they kept hammering me on this thing, you have not got a clue. You are absolutely arrogant and you haven't got a clue what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I, there's times where I'm in, the middle, I'm in the process of writing a book now, and there's days where, you know, I wake up and it's there. Boom. And I, I and like you said, I run right to the computer or my notebook, and I try to write it down because in an hour it'll be gone. And I mean, yeah. gone. It's just not there anymore. It's like, what was I even thinking about earlier? So I'm definitely yeah. one that has had that happen to him. Yeah, so. that's the hypnogic and hippopompic states where it's like, before you, like if when you're in an ordinary state, you're in a, what is it, an alpha state. And then you go down into a delta state. But in order to get to the delta state, you got to go through the theta state. So that's when you get groggy just before you go to sleep or just when you're waking up, you're still in that theta state. And that's the state that you got to be in. That's where channelers are and, and people like that, they're, they're picking it up. And in fact, the best example of that is you, you talk about this when you get up. Uh, um, um, oh, shoot. Um, you wrote 90 books. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. His most famous. Preston Denham. Uh, Deepak Chopra. Okay. So Deepak Chopra, he says, I've written 90 books. He said, I'll tell you where they come from. He said, he has this whole procedure of how he does stuff during the day. He said, the first thing he does, as soon as he wakes up, he just lies there. He doesn't move. Because if you move, if you move your left finger or something, then the left brain goes, oh, 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 Jesse's waking up. Let's go. Let's go. He's waking okay. up. And, and, and that's what's happening. That The filter is shutting. The, you're going back into theta. The filter is shutting down. You're moving out of alpha. And, and Deepak Chopra says, he doesn't move. He just lies there and looks at the ceiling. For half an hour and he says the stuff comes in his head and that's where he writes in his blog that day and he said that's where the 90 books come from exactly everything everything came by lying there half an hour every morning wow, and, and writing down what comes into his head and and this this idea of inspiration where where do thoughts come from or if i say to you okay who who is your first girlfriend and this name will pop in your head and i'm going to people like the regular way is uh, all these neurons. And it's like, come on, you're actually going to try to tell me there was neurons that went and looked in, up in the third floor in the filing cabinet under uh, Jesse's girlfriend. So let's see, let's see who's the first one here. Or <laughs> when I say to you who, was the, who it was, and I say, well, are you sure that's who it was? And you'll go, yeah, I know what it was. And that's the idea that it's, it's like you're remembering. So what happens is a lot of people, when you have that knowing thing, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like somebody reminds you that, remember that person in high school and then you go i can't remember their name and then they say the name and they go oh yeah it's almost like they open that when you open the field all the information is there you've seen it before so when you when you it opens up and you see it you go oh yeah 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 and then you you bring it back into the physical world that's all there already and this idea for reincarnation is a fact you you've planned certain things and you you've you've planned to do things and you you have absolute knowledge when you die as to what's going on you just have to go through the river of forgetfulness when you come here and you forget it all but in that couple of moments when you when you're in meditation or or you know just as you're waking up or something you're in the field you're still in the field and and you see something and you go oh yeah and you think it's like an inspiration but it's something you've seen before and and you have that idea that yes this is real this is real write it down write it down I had that my second download experience where I was really cold. I was walking down a street and this thing started to happen. And I basically said, oh, I got, I got to write this down. I got this piece of paper and a pen. And I, I quickly wrote this stuff down. And uh, I knew I, you got to write this down. So that's the idea is, you know, the, 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 that this stuff's real. Why do you think certain, certain, uh, certain people get more downloads than other people? Is there a particular reason or are they just picking whoever at the time? Well, no, it's the uh, it's the idea of the, of the left brain that, that okay. people, the people who are very like Roger Lear said, all, all the experiences he dealt with were right brain creative people. And they all 
they, there's a lot of them in Hollywood. That's this idea of, of you know, like left brain music is practicing uh, scales and stuff like that. And Paul McCartney said, I've never done a scale, nor do I ever intend to do a scale. He's a right brain person. They just sit there and wait for the song to come in their head. So you'll get people who are, uh, do meditation, will get a lot of stuff or okay. uh, the hypnosis or head injuries. Like a lot of people, we, we, we realized that, uh, that a lot of mediums, there was a study done that the vast majority of, they did a study of mediums in, in, I think it was Brazil. And they found that the vast majority of those people had, uh, those girls had uh, childhood abuse issues. And that's the thing is when you're under an abuse thing, what you're doing is you're trying to shut the physical world out and also oh, you're talking to your dead grandmother. And it's this idea that, that a lot of times trauma is one of the things in injury, you'll see people who uh, are abducted and then suddenly they're very psychic. And it's, or, or I say, like, I have this joke. I say, why does the alien come into your room and go, Jesse, Jesse, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And then you wake up and go, oh my God, there's an alien in the room. And you, you, you just go crazy and it's forcing you to dissociate. So you dissociate and then they go, put their hand on your head and say, okay, go back to sleep. And then you're ready to go. You, you, you've got, you forced the person. It's this trauma is as bad as that might sound. Trauma is one of the main things that you see in terms of people who are very psychic. He is also very psychic. And I'll say anything happened in your life. And they'll say, well, yeah, when I was four, I had this uh, fever and I was 105 fever and, and you'll always get something or, you know, I had a near death experience, like 37% of all experiencers say they've had a near death experience. So what is the chance that that's random? What's the chance that you randomly got abducted off the street by aliens? And then at the same time, you had a near death experience. And a lot of the, the near death experience people I've talked to, the experiences, they've had two near death experiences, like Chris Bledsoe had two of them. And that's the thing is when you have these near death experiences, you dissociate you you sort of like you shot in the back and boom your your left brain shuts down because the ego is trying to save itself and stuff like that and there's different methods so there's there's different ways of in the in the contact modality book i list 80 you know 70 some methods that that people use that to uh do it and psychedelics like i did an experiment i wrote, wrote a book on psilocybin so i did 25 because I, I was not able to meditate i was never you know people i'd meditate all the time and nothing would really happen i didn't get any sort of you know, inspirations or anything. So I go, I got I get in the field. I got to, and so I go, ah, oh, psychedelics, this is pretty scary looking stuff. I never done anything like that in my life. And I'm saying, well, I'm gonna get in the field, man. I don't care. You know? <laughs> because they say it's like a roller coaster. You get on it, you're going wherever it's going. There's no turning back once you take it, you, you know, you right. sort of call it off. And I got that's where that's where I got the ego. They went after me almost every time on the ego. They taught me different lessons. And all I said was when I went in there, I called it psilocybin school. So I'm not in there to get anything. I just said, okay, I'm here for school. What, what do you want to teach me? And I actually got lessons. I got the first one was on grief. The second one was on uh, compassion. The first was compassion. The second was on grief. Uh, I think the sixth one was on death, which was the most interesting one. It was six different things, right? I was just going from one thing to another, and they're showing me all this stuff about death. And then I had a couple of real bad experiences at the end. And uh, that I, I attributed sort of to fear, like you're afraid. If you take fear in, it's the same thing as anything else. When you take fear in, you sort of manifest that. You can have a Absolutely. real bad experience. So I learned that, but they hammered me time and time again. And at one point, it was kind of funny because at one point I was so angry because I was actually taping these things. I was I was actually taping these experiences as I was having them. Oh, wow. and, and then the one I, I, the one I was really weird because I was talking to a woman. I was absolutely certain I was talking to some female. And uh, then the, the other one was the, the thing where 
they kept hammering me on the, your ego and you're so egotistical and and you think you know everything and and all this kind of stuff and then i said i'm, I'm just here to find out the answers okay so so uh, you tell me what the hell's going on here what, what, what's going on how's reality work and this voice says uh, we don't know either <laughs> and i go what the hell you mean you don't know and i was I'm just curious what do you mean you don't know and i think it was this thing where whatever i was talking to was sort of like one step above me but, but it's like in the in reality you only know what's from you down right you don't know what's right. above you yep and i was just i thought that was the weirdest thing i said we don't know <laughs> so I, I went through all these different things where i was trying to you know trying to get into the field i was trying to figure it out and that's what i think it is that these guys are in the field and that's why you should listen to experiences because a lot of people are still like you'll see the government what they're trying to do now they're, they're going to gather sighting reports and what do they give you in the first report they said oh we had 144 cases yeah. and one of them we identified <laughs> And then you go, well, what was the shape? It's like, can't tell you, that's classified. And you say, well, what was the report? Can't tell you, that's classified. And and it's like the blue book. You had the case and you had you the you had the, the case and you had the shape. Now it's even worse. You're not getting anything. So the right. second report was supposed to have 100, 365 <laughs> cases, some and half of them were identified, half of them were unidentified. And so what are you going to get? Nothing. It's just numbers. You have to get past the sightings. We're going to do the same old thing again. We're going to get a bunch of sightings that's going to go in the black world, and they're not going to tell you what's going. The the real stuff, even Jim Semi Van said the real stuff they're not going to tell you. I'm not going to have a philosophical no. discussion. All they're interested in is this the national security aspect. Are they a threat and what's the technology? And you're never they're never gonna tell you the technology. So you gotta talk to the experiencers. They're the ones that are talking to the intelligence. And they actually do that. That's why Chris Bledsoe has all these people around him. And he actually said to the the one guy, he said, What are you what are you high-level guys doing on my property? Like what's really going on here? Like why are right. you here? And the, the guy said, well, it appears like uh, they like you and uh, they're talking to you and uh, they don't seem to like us because they're not talking to us. <laughs> so we, we came here to find out what they're telling you. That's what these high level guys told. And I asked them, like, for example, I said, uh, you did you ever they ever ask you how to fly the craft? Did they ever ask you about that? And he said, oh, yeah. He said they brought in a, a U.S. Air Force general and I explained to him how it was done. And so wow. you see this kind of stuff. And that's the thing. Chris Bledsoe has this thing and you listen very carefully and you start to see these patterns, these patterns about people flying the craft. And, and it's very clear. The pattern is, is absolutely clear with what they're doing. And you start to see what artificial intelligence might look like. Right. And this idea about the, the, the craft being bigger, even even Hal Putoff talked about that. Hal Putoff talked about the fact he said, I'd sure like to know how the craft can be bigger on the inside and as, as it is outside. Because there's a report from Leonard Stringfield, if you remember back in the, and he was actually oh, in yeah. your area, and and he um, he had 300 cases where people were talking about crashes and abduction, not uh, crashes and bodies and autopsies and stuff. And he tells the story of a 1973 case of a photographer flown out of Hawaii into North Air Force Base, driven two hours to a hangar, and in the hangar was a, a crane with a with a net hanging from it, and inside the net was a 30 foot wide flying saucer and that's the guy that went inside and he said he could throw a football in any direction and not hit a wall and he was there to film the panel so in the book i actually i show the panels chris Butso actually drew the panel for me okay. with all the all those figures on it and that's what this guy was there to film and and that and you, so on the ground even on the ground uh, uh when this thing is captured the thing is bigger on the inside than is outside. And that just shows that there's something seriously wrong with our idea of time and space. And that's why Hal Putoff, I think, is so interested in it. Because it, it, the anomalies, it's almost like uh, Gary Nolan says, I'm interested in the 5% unknown. Right. Anything that's outside the bell curve. 
why is that outside the bell curve? What is going on? And the anomaly. So that's the anomalies. That's the things that don't fit in. Right. And if you want to win a Nobel Prize, you got to look at the anomalies. You can't just keep shuffling the same puzzle pieces around. The anomaly is telling you something is wrong. You look at the anomaly. Why? If 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 this was true, if if time and space was the way we think it is, this wouldn't be happening. It's happening, which means that's an anomaly. And if you can figure out why this is happening, you win the Nobel Prize. Or Absolutely. You get an invention that's worth millions of dollars. Yes, and that's what I've been trying to tell people is the five percent and working with experiencers i think is the number one thing we need to do um yeah. for sure but uh we got about a minute left do you want to tell everybody where they can follow your work at grant and where they can get a hold of you at okay well um if they want any of the books that i've written i've written quite a few they're on amazon um basically where you can follow me is on my facebook i usually post a lot of stuff on facebook uh, but that's an easy one. It's presidential UFO. If you go to Facebook and I post a lot of stuff on there every day in terms of uh, new stuff. And I get a lot of new stuff every day. That's basically where people can follow me. And I have a blog, which is the White House UFO blog spot. So if they want to go there, I write a lot of stuff there, articles, which not a lot of people read, but I spend a lot of time writing them. OK, that would be great. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm telling you what, I think I've learned more just in this hour than I have all this past week. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely great information. I, I really, um, this is something oh, new, and I think people need to hear this because we've been trying to get people to focus on the experiencer aspect instead yeah. of the sightings because that's where the real information's at, you know, and you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for coming on today, and we'll definitely yeah. have to have you on again in the future. It was a pleasure. Um, yeah. thank I you, appreciate Jesse. it. No problem. And I want to thank, thank everybody for tuning in today's episode. We'll be back next week with special guest Kevin Day. And until then, remember to keep your eyes in the sky. Well, what an episode. I want to thank our special guest, Grant Cameron, for coming on today and sharing the information and his research that he's been doing over these years. It's definitely appreciated. I want to thank him for that. And thank you for coming on the show today. Next week, we have special guest Kevin Day. I'm pretty sure everybody knows that name. Uh, we'll be talking about his experience that he's had and what he's been doing lately in the field of ufology as well. Um, please make sure you guys reach out and check out our sponsor, Set Apart Farms. They're helping veterans and their families with housing, therapy, healing, and so much more. It's just a great thing they're doing for veterans and their families. So please go ahead and check them out. Um, if you are a veteran, also go ahead and see him get signed up and get some help. Um, that's what they're there for. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in to today's episode, and we'll see you all next week. And until then, remember to keep your eyes in the sky.